This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Charles Bresler who is the co-founder and a board member of The Life You Can Save which is a non-profit dedicated to smart giving and effective giving and actually recommends charities that save or improve the most number of lives per dollar and making it easy for people to support those charities. So massive, massive giving emphasis on today's episode. So Charlie, thanks so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I want to get your opinion on effective giving and how that can be, I guess you could say, effective, but also real, for want of a better expression, because people give in a way to receive, but then there's giving for the sake of giving and things tend to find their way back to you, so to speak. What would you say effective giving was? Well, if you think about it, finding its way back to you, I think effective giving is for people that really try to lead a life where they're interested in pursuing their own hobbies, their interests of their family and community, um, but giving effectively, giving to the most effective charities around the world and helping people who may not live next door is integrated into their life. So I think and gives them pleasure and helps them become the person they want to be. So I think the way it finds its way back to you is by um, improving your sense of self and your feeling that you're living a, a value-laden life. Is that something that everybody can do, or would you say it's restricted to a certain kind of people? Let's say someone that has a lot to give versus someone that gives even if they don't have a lot to give. How do you think about something like that? I think it can be included in anyone's life. I mean, I think if you look at the fact that one pound um, or maybe let's call it two pounds can save uh, a child's life from malaria by covering them with a bed net that covers them and one other person, maybe their mom, for up to three years um, if used effectively. Then you take two pounds and you can turn it into a life save. Now, not every bed saves a life because not every child who sleeps under a malaria bed net would have been infected. But, But it certainly has a very high degree of likelihood of contributing to saving lives. And that doesn't require a large donation. On the other hand, if somebody has a lot of discretionary money or is spending their money on things that really don't have the kind of value as saving or improving lives, then they can they can do a lot. But I think this is accessible to any person that sees themselves as the kind of person that wants to help people around the world, independent of whether or not they happen to live next door. I think it's fascinating when you break it down to something as straightforward or as basic, I suppose, as a net that can save people's lives from malaria and other diseases that are carried by mosquitoes, let's say, for example. That makes me think of, is there anything that you can speak to that's maybe effective or ineffective at certain amounts of money? So let's say £2 or or $2 or whatever it is. Buying the net would be effective, but then spending it in another area maybe less so, but the amount might be the same. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can spend two pounds or three pounds on a flat white in your in the morning when you could have brewed coffee at home for <laughs> like uh, you know twenty pence or whatever it is, and you spend all that money on a flat white, and you have to wait in line, and you're likely to spill it on yourself when you're on your way to work, and so your clothes are now dirty. So I think that that would be an example of something that may give you pleasure, but could be relatively. Uh, ineffective. I think there are also charities that you can give your money, like the Donkey Sanctuary, that are good causes and raise tens of millions of dollars, but don't have the same value as saving a child's life in sub-Saharan Africa or saving a child's life in Leeds or Liverpool. The problem with saving a life of a child in Leeds or Liverpool is that it's dramatically more costly than saving a life in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. It isn't that that child isn't of equal value. It's that the child maybe costs tremendously more to save. Now, obviously, I think as a society or as a, as a, as a world, we have the ability to save all those children, but we're not necessarily at this point doing that. And so what the Life You Can Save tries to do is curate a list of charities that do the most good per dollar. Um, and uh, we certainly don't curate a place, a list of places to get uh, two pound lattes. <laughs> it did actually make me wonder, is this why we focus so heavily in, let's say, extreme poverty areas? Because the value of the pound or dollar can go further just because of the area or country of the world that they're focused on. That is why we focus in Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, not because we value those children any more or less than children in the UK or Australia or the United States or Canada or anywhere else for that matter. It's because we can save lives dramatically uh, less expensively or do some other good. For example, for $50, you can give a child eyesight who suffers from congenital cataracts, but it costs $40,000, I'm using US dollars now, switch currencies. Um, It costs 40,000 US dollars to train a guide dog to take care of a blind person for seven years. So that's 800 times more easier to 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 give a child sight than simply help a a blind person um, have a guide dog to help them for seven years. Now, if you or I or any of people listening were blind, we would want a guide dog but we're just looking at in the cold light of day, what would be the most effective way to use uh, 50 uh, quid or, or, or so, to st- and you can do an amazing amount of good. Whereas uh, a cataract surgery in London um, might cost, I- I'm guessing, I have no idea, 2000 pounds versus 50 pounds. It does make me think actually that it's almost like the solution matters as well, where you use the example of the, the blind person, they can get the surgery, they can get a guide dog. Similar in terms of you providing a solution for blind people, but the result might be different. The cost might be different. And you as a organization may have to actually place some kind of priority for want of a better expression or a value on the actual solution that you're funding or helping people towards it's almost like okay people may have the same concern or problem or issue that they're facing 
but how we solve those problems has to be the best but also the most cost effective because if you get someone in to have surgery that may be a semi-permanent solution it may still come back there's a risk of that but for at least the medium term it's gone if they have a guide dog it's simply coping with their situation but that's an everyday thing for that person that they would then have to live with the guide dog if that makes sense is that something that you actually have to do do you have to sit down and go right this is what people are facing these are the actual solutions that are to hand how do we prioritize those yeah i do think it has to do with prioritization but i want to say that in a country like the uk that has the capability not necessarily the political will but the capability to deal with providing people with essential services through the National Health Service, which is one of the treasured institutions in the UK, then people should be able to get those services, um, whereas nothing like the National Health Service exists in Uganda or Burkina uh, Faso or even Cape Town, South Africa. So I think that... Um, People listening may say, but yes, but the National Health Service doesn't always provide those services. And that's true. Um, but I still think if you just compare dollar for dollar, the service is a lot less expensive in sub-Saharan Africa. That said, we would like to be able to do it all. And I think all of us would, or at least I think most of us would like to live in a world where philanthropy giving isn't even necessary because people's basic needs are taken care of. But that's not the world we live in. And yes, we do prioritize um, which which charities we curate and where we curate them. We don't recommend charities uh, in the United Kingdom to help people in the United Kingdom. But again, as I've said, it's not because we don't value those lives equally. We do value those lives equally. We just don't value those lives more. I heard a rumor as well that you actually started in the the corporate world, which then made you transition into more philanthropic-based work. Is that true? And tell us a bit about that for those that don't know. It's not a rumor. It's true. But I actually started as a clinical psychologist and social psychologist. So I got a PhD after university. I got a PhD, my undergraduate degree, I got a PhD in social and clinical psychologist and worked as a graduate professor of psychology for seven years before I was recruited by a childhood friend to start a training program for his retail clothing company. For those of you that are listening in the UK, you can think of Moss Brothers. It was a company much like Moss Brothers, um, except when I started, we were reasonably small. And by the time I ended as president of this company, we had uh, 700 stores. And so we were much bigger, even relative to the United States, I think, than Moss Brothers is or was, I don't even know about how big Musk Brothers is now, because um, who wears a suit? But um, so I, I accidentally uh, stumbled into a career in business. But in 2008, quite a long time ago, I decided that to do something more social values of social value was um, more consistent with my own values than continuing to be an executive in a public company. So I resigned and decided to go to work um, doing something that I thought was more important. And a number of years later, I read a very important book called The Life You Can Save by the philosopher Peter Singer. 
That book, by the way, is available for all your readers on our website at thelifeyoucansave.org backslash the book. But people can just go to our website, thelifeyoucansave.org, and they can download uh, an ebook or a celebrity-read audiobook by people like Stephen Fry or Paul Simon. They've all read Kristen Bell. They've read chapters, and they can listen to Peter Singer's book. But I read that book in 2012 after I'd already decided to do something of more social value. And that's when I contacted Peter about starting a proper nonprofit to spread these ideas. Um, so I was in business. I was a psychologist. Um, and then in 2013, I started The Life You Can Save with Peter Singer. I wonder if it's the psychology of giving that was part of why you made the transition. Was that true? Was that what happened? That like you realized just how impactful giving can be and you decided to commit to that? Well, I realized how important and impactful giving could be, but I think I committed to doing it because I had a longstanding interest in doing something that had significant social value, but I wasn't sure how to do it in an impactful way. And I had been very self-indulgent, um, really focusing on my family and myself uh, for all those other years and not really maximizing my own value proposition, if you will. When I read how impactful you can do those things, um, it really helped me realize what I wanted to do. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the, the reason that Diane and I have given away a good portion of the money we that I made in business, by the way, she's a physician, or that we've made together is because it helps me be the person that I've always felt like I should be. Um, and I think living a purposeful life is living a life where you're trying to actualize your values and and achieve what you want as a person um, in the limited time we have available to us on, on earth. And I felt like I really wasn't doing that, uh, working in the business community. Um, so that that's why I made the switch. If someone else wanted to find out what lights them up, what their purpose is, what their passion is, they may actually want to get some insight from you, whether it be an activity, an exercise, a list of prompts that you gave yourself at the time. Is there anything that you can speak to that might be able to help someone that's struggling with the same thing that you was? Well, I think if people are interested in really being impactful and practical, I think looking at Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, or listening to it is a really good place to start. Um, I think the, I can't give anybody a formula, um, but I think that one thing to do is to really do an exercise, which sometimes is referred to as values clarification. Look, like list the things that are most important to you in your life, what things you really could come to value about yourself and start looking at the relationship between what you do day to day and how much you're really uh, supporting those values uh, and look at where there's some discrepancy and see if there's anything uh, you can do about it. So I think some sort of values clarification just by yourself or with uh, your, your partner or with, with close friends or starting a group where people talk about it um, is a good thing to do. I don't have a, a magic way of doing it, but most of us have a pretty big gap between what we think we should be doing and want to be doing and what we're actually doing and what would make a more fulfilling life. For your wealthier listeners, 
they may be on what we sometimes refer to as the hedonic treadmill, where they they act like more and more material possessions, more and more holidays, uh, more and more spending is going to make them happier. And I think beginning to question whether that's true and what alternative uses they have of their money is a really good place to start. That isn't true of most of your guests necessarily, because probably most of your guests or a lot of your guests are just saying, I can barely get by myself. Uh, for those people, I do think that there's things they can do with the little bit of money that they have that they they could give away um, or that they could use to support an effective charity or that they could use some of their time. Um, so I don't think there's any magic except stepping back and looking at the gap between your values and how you're actually living. For some people, the idea of saving lives, contributing, being impactful can feel almost like a stretch for them. As you said, some people are potentially scraping by. Some people live much more comfortably than others. Is there an element of it has to be what you have left after your survival needs? If you refer to someone like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, let's Mm -hmm. say, where once you've got your survival needs met, social needs met, all those things, is there a point where you would even advise against giving because of their situation or because of what their needs are, the the struggling to fulfill? How do you think about something like that? Well, I think there are people who literally have reasonably no discretionary income, um, that they haven't met their basic needs. And I don't think those people should think about being giving, like maybe even two pounds would be like a real stretch. there are probably not a lot of your listeners in that situation, but in that situation, I think one should wait until they have some means in which to give. Maybe they have an hour or two that they could uh, they could donate to doing some other stuff for other people. But for a lot of people, like single moms who have two or three kids and a job, I mean, there may be just no room for something like that. But I think giving starts once you've met your basic needs, and I mean your really basic needs, and that you feel like you're you're doing what you need to do as a parent. And then you can start to look about um, all those children around the world that you might also be able to help even with minimal amounts of money. Uh, but there are people out there who are making a lot of money who are either giving ineffectively uh, because somebody said, oh, I really want you to give money to Oxford because they really could use a new science lab, or I really want you to give money to the uh, cancer society because they're doing great research. Uh, so they give millions of pounds or hundreds of thousands of pounds away, but they could have used that money much more effectively. So I think it's a range depending upon who the person is. But I don't think any of us would think that somebody who has uh, no discretionary spending, who's really struggling to meet their own basic needs, uh, should give money away. I do think that in a country like the UK, which is different from the United States, where you do have a national health service, for whatever complaints you all have about the national health service, it does provide much better care than we get in the United States without having something like a national health service. So I think that uh, that's a basic need that everyone in the UK should be able to appreciate even if they have lots of criticisms of the National Health Service. Hopefully the new government won't tear it apart um, or any other social services that may be a real valuable <laughs> to be real value to people. But um, but I do think that 
there are people in spite of the NHS uh, who don't have really the money to give. And that's, that's perfectly reasonable. It's interesting when you brought up time, though. And the reason why I'd like to dive into that a little bit is so far we've spoken a lot about financial side and contributing financially. But there are people out there that donate a lot of time to certain projects and certain areas that are important to them. But that's time-wise versus financial. Is there a difference between the two, do you think? And how could someone get involved time-wise versus money-wise? Because it feels like it would be easier to just send money or write a check, let's say, to a cause that they think is important. But dedicating your time, at first pass anyway, feels like it could be a logistical struggle for certain people as well. How would that work for someone <laughs> yeah, I like think that? It's, I think it's... I think people generally believe that do donating your time rather than money is a more noble thing to do. But actually, I'm of the opinion that that's not the case. Although I volunteered as executive director for 10 years uh, at The Life You Can Save. So I obviously believe in donating your time, but I have the financial wherewithal to not need to make an income because I was lucky enough to be in business and the structure of American companies is such that I was overpaid to do my job. So I had money to to be able to support myself to not make money. But I think for most people, um, they might be better off actually earning an extra 20 pounds a week and giving the money away rather than spending two or three hours in some relatively ineffective volunteer job that actually isn't going to help as much as those 20 pounds could. The difference is that maybe volunteering hands-on in your in your home city or or town might feel more satisfying because it's it's local you can feel the value of what you're doing you can feel your own sacrifice if you will but it actually may not be the most effective thing you can do because if you didn't volunteer to do that job somebody maybe equally competent might have volunteered to do that job but not given away the 20 pounds to buy 10 bed nests or something like that so um i would think i would think twice before you volunteer to make sure you think it's the most satisfying and the most impactful thing you can do. Um, I happen to be able to do both. So I was just very fortunate. But I think um, if I'd had to choose between uh, volunteering for the life you can save and um, giving the money away, I think giving the money away would have been better because we probably could have found another executive director who would have been as good, better, or maybe almost as good as me. So I think everybody needs to think about that. Um, and again, you're thinking about the impact, your own satisfaction. Uh, volunteering is wonderful. And I don't think, I think you can do both. But um, sometimes one needs to think about um, the money as maybe being more valuable. My wife was, a, I think, a very compassionate family physician. But I think if you asked her where her biggest impact has been, it's been not the work she's done with her patients in a free clinic but her work she did uh, financially supporting the life you can save and maybe seeing one or two extra patients a week uh, in order to be able to afford that. She didn't have to do that in order to afford it, but it's just an example. That said, I do think volunteering can be a very satisfying and useful thing to do, um, but I think one ought to think about the relative value of it. How would you suggest people come to the right conclusion for them? Is there a way of 
something people questions that people can ask certain principles that you would advise them to stick to because some people might get a lot of intrinsic value from volunteering their time but then could they not pay someone more qualified to do the job is probably a worthwhile comparison and and thing to ask how would you suggest people draw the conclusion to either donate their time or donate their finances to a cause that's important to them well i think the personal satisfaction you get from it is one of the important ingredients because it isn't that satisfying to just send a check off as long but i think if you send a check to one of the charities we've curated for example then you know the money will get where you want it to go and will do what we say it'll do but on the other hand volunteering could be more satisfying so i just think you have to look at how much you value your own personal satisfaction and the activity you're volunteering to do versus um, the impact. But for example, if you have a eight-year-old daughter and you are a football player, say you played in secondary school or, or wherever, and you can volunteer your time to coach her team and do it in a really good way that will help these kids develop into good citizens and maybe not necessarily great soccer uh, football players, excuse me. Um, that's fine. I mean, but you can volunteer to coach a football team and still give 20 quid or whatever away every week. Um, so again, I think you have to look at the relative value. I'm not asking people to not help their local sports teams or their churches or their food bank. I think you can do that, but I'm just saying you might want to look at the relative impact and I think uh, bang per dollar, bang per unit of effort is, a, is another really good way to look at it. And that's what we try to do at The Life You Can Save is we try to look at the value of these uh, organizations that we support. We don't compare it to the value you might get from coaching your daughter's football team. But again, I think in that sense, you can, you can do both. Um, and I think volunteering in your with your in your community or at your church or, or wherever it is is a really valuable thing to do personally and can be very gratifying even if its impact is less than the impact you would have by giving some money away but i think for most people they can do both i wonder if there is anything that you can think of that is like top roi for a dollar or pound that people are spending is there anything that you can think of it's probably off the top of your head charlie so i'm aware that it's not an easy thing to just pull off memory but is there anything that is very impactful for the amount that you're spending because two dollars two pounds for a net sounds very impactful but then let's say a hundred could be 50 nets or something else that might actually be more impactful for the total amount that people are spending. Is there anything that you can think of? I can't think of anything that's more impactful than giving to Against Malaria Foundation um, or the Malaria Consortium. They're incredibly impactful nonprofits. The Against Malaria Foundation, by the way, is based in London. But another nonprofit that's based in London is Development Media International. And I think that's an amazing uh, nonprofit of the 25 that we recommend. It's one that I always bring to light. It's also based in London. And um, I think if you look on our website and look at Development Media International, they create radio spots and television spots to get mothers aware of the fact that they can 
bring their children to a local clinic that has the capacity to treat the kids diarrhea or pneumonia and they actually save lives for a relatively small amount of money and so i think those radio spots or television spots are very cool and they're very effective they're produced locally in the countries in the dialect that is understandable to people who live in those countries in Africa. So I would check out Development Media International, which is a London-based organization. Against Malaria Foundation is another place. So those are the two um, that come to mind, but there's food fortification for 50 50 cents. Um, There's all these various things you can do. So I suggest that people look through uh, the best charities on our website called uh, thelifeyoucansave.org, and they can peruse around those charities and they can get an idea Um, of the value. And then we have this thing called the impact calculator, where you can say, okay, if I'm going to give X number, it's usually in dollars, unfortunately, but I'm going to give X number of dollars, what is going to be the impact in this charity versus that charity? And so you can play around on our website for 20 minutes, I think, and get a really good idea where you can get a lot of impact for each dollar. It is fascinating when you realize just how far your money can actually go or your time can go should you choose to donate your time. And it did actually surprise me, I'll be honest. When I was looking through it and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to donate X amount, what would happen? And it is really surprising just how far your money can go, isn't it? It can be quite surprising for some people. It is. And sometimes it's upsetting to people when they realize that um, they could be buying a bed net instead of that flat white that they get three or four mornings a week. Or they went out to dinner uh, to get uh, Indian food or, or a steak and they spend, I don't know, between themselves and their partner, maybe they spend uh, 40 pounds. And then they look back and they think, oh my gosh, what could I have done with 40 pounds? I mean, you can get really almost paralyzed by that. But I think one can decide, okay, what's an amount of money that I want to give away and still be able to go out if I want um, and have a meal uh, meal out or, or um, subscribe to a streaming channel or go to a football game or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I think that you have to make that kind of decision and not think about it every single time you go to spend money. But I do think it's important to become aware of some of these things we spend money on. Um, we could do a lot more good by doing something else. So I think you have to weigh that. And we're not expecting people to live to the highest standard, which is um, that you give until what you'd be giving away would put you in the position of the people you're trying to help. I think that's an unrealistic standard. It happens to be maybe the most morally justifiable standard, but it's not realistic. And I don't think there are very many people who would live up to that standard. I certainly don't. You actually ask yourself that thing as well and have that conversation with yourself around when you spend money, does your head get to the point where it goes with that money? I could spend it here and it will go so much further than that T-shirt that I want to buy or that holiday that I'm trying to pay for. Do you think about that? Yes, very much so. And sometimes I make what I would consider the more ethical decision and sometimes <laughs> not. But recently, my wife and I were thinking of going to Spain. We live in the northwestern part of America and we were going to go to Spain for two weeks. And it was the idea of doing it just became 
it just seemed too expensive. Not that we couldn't afford it because we're very lucky as far as that goes, but it just seemed like there were a lot better things we could do that we knew we could do with the money we were going to spend. And we just been in Europe recently, three months ago. And although we really enjoyed it, uh, we didn't need to go back now. And so we decided not to go. Sometimes we make the decision that we will spend the money. And again, um, we don't meet the highest standard, but we at least try to consider um, what would do what would do the most good, even though we don't always do the most good. But I think it's a matter of doing it, doing enough that you can look at yourself in the mirror and feel like I am more or less the kind of person that I want to be. What do you think is the future of this kind of work? Do you think awareness might be enough for people to put a percentage of their income every month towards things like this? Is that the kind of world that you're picturing or do you think there's too much work to be done for that to actually be a reality? It's certainly the kind of world... I'm picturing three different types of worlds, I guess. One, the world we're living in where that doesn't happen too often. One, a world where it would happen a lot more. And then the final is the world where there is no need for philanthropy because people's basic needs are being met. By basic needs, I mean uh, food security, healthcare, and housing. Those are the things that I would consider to be basic needs. And if we lived in a world where those basic needs were being taken care of everywhere, then there would be no need for the kind of organization that the life you can save is. But we're not at that point, and I don't know how we're going to get to that point from where we are. So what I'm hoping for is an increase in people's awareness and then their behavior to uh, do more than they currently do and to set aside a monthly amount and to make monthly recurring donations to highly effective nonprofits. And that's the work we do. But we are not we don't delude ourselves into thinking we're creating a world which will be uh, perfect or near perfect. Um, given the world we're living in, uh, where we have all the problems we have, um, we're just trying to make it a bit a bit better. And I think that's true of how we view ourselves too. I'm not trying or could ever believe that I would become a perfect person, but I would like to be a little better each six month period than I was the six months before. And by better, I mean living more consistently with my values. But I don't want to beat myself up that I'm not going to be uh, Buddha or Christ or whomever, because that that's just not going to happen. I've heard that you're an avid walker. You tend to rack up quite a, a lot of walking per week. Talk to us a bit about your journey with walking, how you got started. And I am picturing the benefits being physical and mental as well. So um, I'll let you elaborate on that. Yeah, so I am an avid walker, but it started um, years ago when I was an avid tennis player. And I played a lot of tennis tournaments. I managed a tennis club. This is before I went to graduate school in psychology. Um, I managed a tennis club. I played a lot of tennis tournaments. I played on a tennis team um, and was kind of like a regionally ranked tennis player. Um, I wasn't Andy Murray, but I was uh, pretty good. And uh, But after a while, I, I, I didn't play a lot of tennis anymore. Um, work and other things got in the way. And then I started on my career as a psychologist. But I decided that what I would do is start long distance running. And so for many, many years, I ran marathons and half marathons. And I just ran about, I don't know, um, I'm just trying to think. It 
Do you talk miles or, or kilometers in the UK? It tends to differ from person miles? to person. Yeah, it can be a bit of both sometimes. It's very strange. Okay. Well, I was running about 45 miles a week um, back in the day. And then, oh, I don't know, about 13 years ago, I developed uh, disc problems in my lower back. And so I switched to I switched to walking. And so I started walking and I actually ended up walking in the last 10 years. I ended up walking uh, more per day than I used to run. So I was walking 50 to 70 miles per week. And the reason that I could do it is because I do it very, very early in the morning. And uh, I still can do my job uh, at the life you can save and walk. And it does give me a lot of uh, well-being because it makes me feel um, that I'll be healthier. I'm 73 years old, so it tries to keep me in reasonably good shape. Um, I do enjoy it um, most days, but not every day. I also use it to talk to friends sometimes while I'm walking or business colleagues. I listen to books. I, li I have an addicted right now to spy novels. So I sometimes listen to spy novels <laughs> on Audible while I'm walking. So I do a whole variety of things, but walking two hours a day or two and a half hours a day has become pretty routine for me. And now that my wife retired a year ago, we do a lot of the walking together. She doesn't walk quite as much, but so it's a, it's an important activity to me. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to give it up and I feel fortunate enough to be able to do it. And I happen to live in a beautiful place um, in the Pacific Northwest that where I'm living close to the sea and the mountains and um, it's a rural environment. So it's not like walking in London or Liverpool or Leeds, although, you know, city parks are often a really nice place to walk. But even in walking in your neighborhood, if you do it early in the morning, like six o'clock in the morning, you can walk for an hour and a half uh, before most people are up and moving and it can be very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's fascinating when... I speak to people who are early risers and they do it because there's nobody else around. They go out for a walk, they do their work, they do whatever it is that they would do before everybody else tends to get up. And what I think it boils down to is the lack of distractions and their ability to concentrate and focus on it and get it done in this single stint of time rather than trying to break it up and get distracted all the time and all of those kinds of things. Is that the same for you? Is that why you typically do it in the morning? Because it's not as distracted? I think so. Um, I also am somebody who doesn't function as well at night. And so um, if I tried to do it later, when there's also no distractions, I just wouldn't do it. So I'm definitely an early morning exerciser. And when I was running marathons, I always tried to get my miles in before uh, lunchtime. Uh, and, uh, but at that time, I was living when I first started in a city. It wasn't nearly as nice, um, but I still um, enjoyed doing it. It was a nice break from my teaching responsibilities. Um, but, you know, it is very hard for some people to be able to do because, again, I mentioned being a single parent. But if you have two or three kids, um, and you don't have any childcare or a partner that can watch the children, it becomes really difficult to do. My wife was super supportive of my distance running. And uh, so when our kids were really young, she was always comfortable 
um, to step in and take the kids for an hour or an hour and a half while I run my uh, 10K or 15K or whatever it was. And so having a really supportive partner and then you can be supportive of them when they want to do it, I think uh, was a really important part of it. Now, when I don't have any children at home, my granddaughter uh, may be the thing that would get in my way um, because I need to take care of her. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine it needing to have that block of time as well because there's something to be said for especially cardio wise when if you break it up into smaller chunks you may not get the same benefit as if you did it in one longer stint especially if you're doing something like walking when I speak to people that do long distance activities there tends to be a wall that you push through where you can physically do it but it's the mental capacity to push through it and keep going and gamify it and keep yourself concentrated mm-hmm. and focused and all those things. There's a couple of mind tricks that you don't necessarily need until it starts to get difficult, which if you only do it for 15 minutes, you may not even get to that point, will you? No, I don't think so. Um, but I don't know about the medical side of it. I just think that it's nice to sustain the activity and to have the satisfaction that you did it and get on with your day, I, I think is it's a really good feeling. It's just one of the yeah. things of actualizing something that you want to be about yourself. Um, but again, I recognize that not everybody has the capacity or the the uh, luxury of being able to do it quite that way. I wonder what your actual, I guess, work is is like, your own personal philanthropy you're able to break it down slightly for people that have an idea that are interested in some kind of idea on what your work is is like and do you see a way of it progressing do you see like how it would look for you in the future are you talking about the day-to-day work i do for the life you can save you're talking about the amount of money that my wife and i donate um I, i guess it would be interesting to see where you where you sit in terms of your own donations but then what your what your general day-to-day would be like my day-to-day is usually i would say is my new role because i i gave up being executive director a year and a half ago and turned it over to one of my colleagues uh because i felt like it was appropriate to do that at this stage but my work involves supporting about four or five teammates so i have i would say on average three meetings a day for three hours. And I do about an hour of writing a day. So probably I work about four hours a day at the work, um, three of which might be meetings, an hour of which may be writing or thinking. And then of course, there's all the thinking I do when I'm walking or talking to my wife uh, about the life you can save and how to uh, improve it. Um, but I would say uh, that's the, the schedule is these, these meetings and our team is scattered throughout the world. So for example, right before this podcast today at seven, I was talking to our deputy director and marketing head, same person who lives in Cape Town, South Africa. So at 6.30 in the morning, almost every day I check in with her. And then after this call, I'll be checking in with the head of partnership and book distribution who lives in Punta Deste, Uruguay. And so, and then this afternoon, I can have a meeting with our executive director who lives in Sydney, Australia. So it's really interesting in terms of the time zones, because we have a completely dispersed team. 
And Zoom has become a huge ally to us, uh, even independent of COVID, because otherwise we couldn't communicate. Before COVID, we used to have an annual retreat uh, where we all got together face to face, but we haven't had one of those since since COVID. Um, now our team is growing and it might be too expensive. So we would probably just have a few of the people get together face to face. But anyway, that's my general work schedule. Um, and then on most days, I spend time with my granddaughter or granddaughters, depending upon where I am. And um, I usually catch a football match uh, three or four times a week because uh, that's uh, a real interest of mine. So that's the division of that. As far as our financial giving goes, we've decided to give away a certain percentage of all the money that we've gotten. And we have a timetable that we've set for giving it away. Um, and we then think about maybe increasing that percentage. And we have a lot of discussions about that. Well, it's very fascinating to hear your take today, Charlie, on the different ways that people can give, the different conversations that people have around that it's time, money, and a lot more, I'm sure, that people would check out if they went to your website. But if people wanted to find out more about yourself, maybe enter your world, social media, that sort of thing, how can people connect with you? Well, I am on LinkedIn, but if people want to try to email me, that would be fine. I'm, I'm Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, at thelifeyoucansave.org. And people are welcome to email me and, and either ask a question or see if we want to arrange a Zoom meeting or talk about their own giving. Um, I'm usually available to do that. That's part of the work I do. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Charlie, thanks so much for being a guest on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Okay, thank you very much for having me, um, and good luck to everyone in the pursuit of becoming the people they want to be. Uh, it's not always an easy thing to do. It's been a lifelong process for me, and I'm still not there. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and they get the help and support from me, and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle. So you set your membership up, you get two months free access. Hopefully I'll see you there and I look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want.